kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's Monday night. It's a little after six. And welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. Um, with me, as always, is the happy and vibrant Miss Janie Kay. Hi, Jim. Hi, Hi Miss Janie. And, of course, the best producer money can't buy. Very. How are you this evening? Feeling any better? Yeah, we well, yeah. I'm a lot better than last week. I can actually That's breathe good. now. Yeah. That is always a bonus. <laughs> um, so somewhere around 7 o'clock, sticking with what we did last week, we're going to be doing the CASA update. So um, I guess let's get ready for some fun news. <laughs> um, God, where to begin? How about TSA? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's bad enough when they, just last week, they let a convicted terrorist walk right through TSA. They let her pre-board. No problems. So that's something. Did you pack your bomb yourself? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, feel free to get, step right on board. So this is kind of how useful these people are. We've called them security theater before. There's a reason for that. Fidgeting, whistling, sweaty palms at one point each. Arrogance, a cold, penetrating stare, and rigid posture, two points. These are just a few of the suspicious signs that the Transportation Security Administration directs its officers to look for and score in airport travelers, according to a confidential TSA document obtained exclusively by The Intercept. A lot of the stuff you hear tonight is going to be from The Intercept or um, Zero Day. Just so you know, uh, the checklist is part of TSA's controversial program to identify potential terrorists based on behaviors that it thinks indicate stress or deception, known as the screening of passengers by observation techniques or SPOT. The program employs specially trained officers known as behavior detection officers to watch and interact with passengers going through screening. The document listing the criteria known as the SPOT referral report is not classified, but has been closely held by the TSA and has not been previously released. 
A copy was provided to The Intercept by a source concerned about the quality of the program, which is, gee, it's hard to believe it's such a great program. Um, <sighs> the checklist ranges from the mind-numbingly obvious, like appears to be in disguise, which is worth three points, to the downright dubious, like a bobbing Adam's apple. Many indicators, like trembling and arriving late for flight, appear to confirm allegations that the program picks out signs and emotions that are common to many people who fly. Oh boy. Signs you might be a terrorist. Exaggerated yawning. Excessive complaints about the screening process. Because everybody should want to be molested by the TSI. Excessive throat clearing. Because God, I hope you don't have a cold or anything. Widely open staring eyes. Wearing improper attire for location. So what does that mean? Uh, is there a right way to dress for the airport? So like not dressing like a hooker? You know, um, if you turn up in what, a penguin suit when you're a guy? You know, I, you know <laughs> it's a valid question. I mean, let's not forget, was it just last year? Um, what's his name? Um, Mr. Smooth, you know who I'm talking about. Flew to Comic Con dressed as Boba Fett. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that went over well with the TSI. Are you serious? Um, yeah, somebody somebody flew to Comic Con because they were a guest at Comic Con and they didn't want to. You know, Loki from the Avengers. Yeah, but he let he, him on a plane dressed as Boba Fett. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tom that's, Hiddleston. That's, yeah, Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, but apparently that's okay. Because I guess his Ab, Adam's apple wasn't bobbing, and he was dressed appropriately for the location. Um, gazing down, exaggerated or repetitive grooming gestures. Really, face pale from recent shaving of beard, rubbing or wringing of hands. A TSA spokesperson declined to comment on the criteria obtained by the Intercept. Behavior detection, which is just one element of the Transportation Security Administration's efforts to mitigate threats against the traveling public, is vital to the TSA's layered approach to deter, detect, and disrupt individuals who post a threat to aviation, a spokesperson said in an emailed statement. Since its introduction in 2007, the SPOT program has attracted controversy for the lack of science supporting it. In 2013, the Government Accountability Office found that there was no evidence to back up the idea that behavioral indicators can be used to identify persons who may pose a threat to aviation security. Analyzing hundreds of scientific studies, the GAO concluded that the human ability to accurately identify deceptive behavior based on behavioral indicators is the same or as or slightly better than chance. The Inspector General of the Department of Homeland Security found in 2013 that the TSA had failed to evaluate SPOT and, quote, cannot ensure that its passengers at United States airports are screened objectively, show that the program is cost-effective, or reasonably justify the program's expansion. Despite those concerns, the TSA has trained and deployed thousands of behavior detector officers, and the program has cost more than $900 million. <coughs> My God. Since it began in 2007, according to the GAO. I just read you a little bit of the 92-point checklist listed in the SPOT referral report. And it's divided into various categories with a point for each. The categories include a preliminary observation and behavior analysis. And then passengers 
pulled over for additional inspection are scored based on two or more categories, whether they have unusual items like almanacs and numerous prepaid calling cards or cell phones, and a final category for signs of deception, which includes covers mouth with hand when speaking and fast eye blink rate. Points can also be deducted from someone's score based on observations about the traveler that make him or her less likely in the TSA eyes to be a terrorist. For example, apparent married couples, if both people are over 55, have two points deducted off their score. Women over the age of 55 have one point deducted. For men, the point deduction doesn't come until they reach 65. Last week, the ACLU sued the TSA to obtain records related to its behavioral detection programs, alleging that they lead to racial profiling. The lawsuit is based on a Freedom of Information Act request that the ACLU filed last November, asking for numerous documents related to the program, including the scientific justification for the program, changes to the list of behavior indicators, materials used to train officers and screen passengers, and what happens to the information collected on travelers. The TSA has consisted on keeping documents about spot secret, but the agency can't hide the fact that there's no evidence the program works, says Hugh Handyside, a staff attorney with the ACLU's National Security Project, in a statement announcing the lawsuit. Being on the lookout for suspicious behavior is a common-sense approach that is used by law enforcement, according to the TSA. They're not law enforcement. No single behavior alone will cause a traveler to be referred for additional screening or will result in a call to the law enforcement officer. The agency said in its email statement, officers are trained and audited to ensure referrals for additional screening are based on only observable behaviors, not race or authenticity. One former behavior deduction officer who asked not to be identified said that spot indicators are used by law enforcement to justify pulling aside anyone officers find suspicious rather than acting as an actual checklist for specific indicators. The spot sheet was designed in such a way that virtually every passenger will exhibit multiple behaviors that can be assigned a spot sheet value, the former manager said. The signs of deception are unfair or ridiculous, the source continued. These are just catch-all behaviors to justify a BDO encounter with a passenger, a license to harass. The observations of a TSA screener on behavior or behavior detection officer shouldn't be the basis for referring someone to law enforcement. The program is flawed and unnecessarily delays unnecessarily delays and harasses the passengers. Taxpayer dollars would be better spent funding real police at TSA checkpoints, the former manager said. A second behavior detection manager, who also asked not to be identified, told The Intercept that the program suffers from a lack of science and simple inconsistency with every airport training its officers differently. The spot program is bullshit, the manager told The Intercept. Complete bullshit. Yeah, I agree with that. Complete bullshit. (laughs) I, I do too. Jeannie? Well, I've always, you know, I've said for a very long time that I think the TSA is a waste of fucking money. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the screening according to behavior, right, it takes 10 to 15 years to train somebody how to read body language properly. Yeah, and <laughs> you know, you better hope that you haven't had LASIK surgery recently because if you did, your eyes are going to be really big and buggy and <laughs> guess what, they're going to fucking blink a lot. Mm-hmm. According to that checklist, I probably wouldn't get through. Uh-uh. <laughs> well, I've always kind of wondered. Free check line every time I get a plane ticket, very, and I can't go through it <laughs> because oh yeah, I look like a bomb on an X-ray. <laughs> yeah, but you're 
assuming they actually know how to read the x-rays. Jan, uh, and I don't, last time I went, going through TSA each direction, scanners didn't pick up what they were supposed to be picking up. And I said, I think your machine is broken. <laughs> and the lady got all fucking pissed off at me. <laughs> don't help the TSA. Well, unless it's to leave and leave you alone. Well, they're <clears throat> professionals after all. Yeah. Well, but you know, when somebody says I can't go through the metal detector, um, I have an implanted medical device, I would think that they would at least want to look at my medical device ID card. And they fucking don't. They do not give a shit. Nobody has ever said a word to me about it. Not even asked to look at the fucking thing. Yep. I mean, I wasn't kidding when I said last week that a convicted terrorist was allowed to go through TSA pre-check. Yeah, and, oh, and and guess what? What? It was a white woman in her, what, 50s? I don't know. Yep. She wasn't yep. in her 50s, but she fucking looked like she was in her 50s. Yeah, she, she looked like she was old enough to get points taken off. <laughs> and, yeah, no, she, she used to, what, bomb police cars in the 70s? She was, like, a, a member of, like, what, the Weather Underground? Something so, like uh, that? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that was Bill Ayer's group. So I'm sure that has no, no bearing on whether she was allowed to go through. Um, Well, the the story is we all need to dress up as Boba Fett to go through. (laughs) Yeah, that actually is the moral of the story. Um, Later on, I have the story from Blot Magazine about stingrays, Mm -hmm. which was just... It's it's just gigantically long for something that says, here, look at this. Here's like two pages of the document that aren't blacked out, Yeah, which is ridiculous. They really went through a lot of hell to get that um, document from Harris Corporation, which is just stupid. We know they're out there. We're able to piece together from varying bits of the technology that we know about what it does and how it works. So why Harris Corporation is pretending they don't send out dirt boxes and stingrays to law enforcement is beyond me. We all know they do. Well, it's the fact that their competitors, shall we say, who make the hardened phones, are now touting that they've got a live map of all the fake towers. Well, they do. There's actually an (laughs) app you can put on your phone. I mean, you've got to pay for it, but it updates the uh, fake cell phone towers that they find in real time. And those are IRSI catchers, which is stingrays, dart boxes, fin, uh, something kingfisher is yeah. the other one. I, I, we don't really know much about that, but I assume they're all pretty much the same thing. Yeah, they all, they all deploy the security exploits in the older phone systems. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Where are we? Um, there's so much news this week. That it's kind of just ridiculous. I guess I'll just pick one and start reading. Um, I think I want to read stuff from Zero Day yet. None of that is, it's all, uh, okay. Apps snoop on your location way more than you think. And I know Jen Boston Vapors already made a comment about this on Facebook. It's a little surprise that mobile apps regularly access our location data. In many cases, it's a sensible deal. 
maps, weather apps, social networks, and shopping services serve up useful info based on where we are. While every under- everyone understands the intrinsic privacy trade-off, you may realize just how often apps ping their location. According to a Carnegie Mellon study, it happens thousands of times a week. The study by the University's Institute for Software Research followed 23 Android phone owners for three weeks. In the first week, they were asked to use their apps as they normally would. In the second week, participants used an app called App Ops to monitor and manage the data that those apps were using. In the third week, the research team introduced a privacy nudge alert that would ping the participants each time an app requested location data. The title of the study, which will be presented at a conference in Seoul next month, tells you all you need to know. Your location has been shared 5,398 times. A field study on mobile app privacy nudging. There's a PDF link if somebody wants to post that in the chat. That's right. More than 5,000 pings in 14 days. Once participants in the study knew how frequently their data was being collected, many adjusted their settings or deleted some apps entirely. But Professor Norman Sadeh, a member of the research team that conducted the research, says the volume of location harvesting isn't the biggest issue. There are some applications where you could justify this level of frequency. Think, for instance, of a navigation app, Sadeh told Wired. So the frequency by itself is not the problem. Instead, it's whether the frequency is justified and obviously whether users are informed of these practices and have some level of control. Today has pinpointed Groupon as a notable frequent pinger, saying that the Deals app requested one participant's location more than 1,000 times in a two-week period. Bill Roberts, head of global communications for Groupon, says that data is needed to deliver the best location-based deals on goods and services. And says Groupon doesn't share data with other companies. We access a user's location when it's permitted in order to show our customers the most pertinent deals near them, Roberts says. We do not share an individual's location data. On Android, you opt into location tracking when you download the app. On iOS, this is done on the device when you first attempt to use location, uh, which sounds reasonable enough until you remember Groupon's app is accessing that location up to 70 times per day. And it's difficult to imagine why hundreds of games, flashlights, digital Bibles, and even fart apps, I don't even want to know what that is, want to know your location. Some of these apps request this info frequently enough to plot your route on a map if they wanted to. Follow the money. It's one thing to have a map, mapping app or service like Foursquare repeatedly request your location, as that's implied by the nature of the service. But when you're talking about games, flashlight apps, and Bibles, where's the data going? Usually, the answer is mobile ad networks. Jason Hung, who leads Carnegie Mellon's Chimps Lab, Computer Human Interactions Mobility Privacy Security Lab, and has collaborated with Today on other mobile privacy studies, says many apps shuttle your location information to third-party services that serve ads based on your whereabouts. Part of Chimps Lab's project roster is privacy grade which uses crowdsourcing and static analysis inspecting code basically to rank free apps from a plus to d for their privacy practices popular games like words with friends jetpack joyride and fruit ninja free have received d's for sketchy behavior the worst grades typically go to apps that do much more than pinpoint your location like seeking permission to write your phone's usb storage sending texts and worse there are very rare cases, but some of them want to get your microphone data, your contact list, and it's really sensitive data at that point, Hong said. Right now, Android will tell you if an app uses location data, 
But what we do in our analysis is to say this app uses location data for X, where X might be social networking or advertising or analytics. The privacy-grade database concentrates on free Android apps. According to Hong, free apps on all platforms are leading culprits when it comes to privacy-offending behavior because developers need to make money. It makes sense from an economic perspective, which is, I want people to use my app. I can either charge 99 cents for it, or I can offer it free and do advertising, Hong says. And if I go the advertising route, it makes sense to just hook into an existing advertising network, and then you see where the problem comes in. According to Hong, many developers don't even realize how sketchy their app's behavior can be. For advertising revenue and other in-app features, they hook into code libraries that offer integration with ads and other services. If you imagine an app is made out of lots of Lego pieces, then some of those Lego pieces are made by other people, Hong explains, likening libraries to those Legos. Facebook has a library to access Facebook services. Twitter has one. Advertisers have one and so forth. It makes it really easy to reuse other people's code. A lot of these apps, the privacy problems aren't usually with the app itself, but often with the libraries. It's usually the advertising library that's trying to get your location data. Not all of them are up to no good, of course. Hmm. Tim Wyatt, director of security for mobile security company Lookout, says there are a few tiers within the industry. There are standalone advertising networks, and there are aggregators that may be sending data to multiple other networks, Wyatt said. It's reasonable to assume that mainstream mobile advertising networks such as Google's AdMob and Apple's iAd are hyper-conscious about how they handle your data such as location. There's no real transparency here, though, so it's natural to be concerned that not everyone is a major publicly traded company. The privacy threat doesn't just end with ad networks either. As today notes, lots of harvested info is sent to insurance and mortgage companies that may use it to set premiums and rates. And as Wyatt says, any data that's accessible by someone is inherently insecure. Unless you know which ad network or business is tapping your info, and you rarely if ever do, there's no way of knowing whether that, where, or how that personal data will wind up, will wind up being used. While Android is the focus of privacy-grade database, the Carnegie Mellon study was run with Android phones. That's not because it's necessarily any more vulnerable a platform than iOS, but Android is more open than iOS and easier to experiment with, Sade says. While iOS generally gives users more control over app permissions than Android in its current state, iOS apps are not immune to privacy activities. iOS makes many of the same types of APIs available to its developers, Sade says. So it's not unreasonable to expect somewhat similar behaviors. Both iOS and Android app ops have significant limitations, he says, noting that even in the current form, they expect users to configure a large number of settings, which do not distinguish between the different possible purposes of those permissions. As for taking control of your mobile phone permissions, today says there's no easy answer. He says the best option is to choose non-invasive apps and delete those that are particularly aggressive, though he admits that's not terribly practical. But as Wyatt notes, a data source that exists is a data source that some may be attacked. And it must be safeguarded. The only truly safe data repository is one that doesn't even exist. Yeah, apps are a problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Every time I get a new phone, uh, I put a link into it on the chat. But one of the first apps I install uh, isn't an app as such. Right. It's okay. um, F-Droid, because then I can load in Adaway. Um, okay. stops adverts 
Nice. But the way it stops adverts is pertinent to this article. Because the way Adaway blocks the adverts is every time an app tries to go onto the internet to go find an advert, right. it redirects it to a local IP address within the phone. So it doesn't actually end up going on the internet. <laughs> Hence why you don't get adverts. <laughs> so it, it cuts out a lot of that nonsense just using that. I, Yeah. But I, I think the problem is most people are... We're ignorant about the technology we use on a day-to-day basis, you know. Oh, and don't leave your GPS turned on. That's a no. good one. Yeah. No. You you can opt out of them knowing where you are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, weather apps, you know, Weather Kitty or, you know, Grumpy Cat Weather. Yeah, I, I love both those apps. I had to get rid of them. They were pinging my phone way too much. Find out where yeah. I was. And I'm like, really? It's a freaking cat that tells me the weather. <laughs> And I can't even use it. So um, those are things you need to look at. Yeah. And most people are really ignorant of the technology they use today. They just think, oh, I open it and it's magic. It's not like that either. Not at all. At all. You have to be really wary. And I mean, I'm a big believer in privacy I think this is all a Fourth Amendment issue because I think what's on your phone, what's on your computer are your digital papers. You have a Fourth Amendment right to keep those safe. No. And and people tap dancing over and infringing on that make me crazy. <laughs> but I think we know that about me. Okay. Here's something from Zero Day. Uh, it's official. NSA spying is hurting the U.S. tech economy. Weren't expecting that, were we? Uh, China, there's a shock, is no longer using high-profile U.S. technology brands for state purchases amid ongoing revelations about mass surveillance and hacking by the U.S. government. A new report confirms key brands, including Cisco, Apple, Intel, and McAfee, among others, have been dropped from the Chinese government list of authorized brands, a Reuters report said Wednesday. The number of approved foreign technology brands fell by a third based on analysis of the procurement list. Less than half of those companies with security products remain on the list. Although a number of reasons were cited, domestic companies were said to offer, quote, more product guarantees than overseas rivals in the wake of the Edward Snowden leaks. Some reports have attempted to pin a multi-billion dollar figure on the impact of the leaks. In reality, the figure could be incalculable. The report confirms that many U.S. technology companies have been saying for the past year, the activities by the NSA are harming their business in crucial growth markets, including China. The Chinese government procurement list changes coincided with a list of, with a series of high-profile leaks that showed the U.S. government to have been on an international mass surveillance spree as well as hacking expeditions into technology companies, governments, and the personal cell phones of world leaders. Concerned about backdoors implanted by the NSA, those revelations sparked a change in Chinese policy by forcing Western technology companies to hand over their source code for inspection. This led to an outcry in the capital by politicians who in the not-so-distant past accused Chinese companies of doing exactly the same thing. From encrypted instant message is to secured browsers and operating system. These privacy 
enhancing expressions. And oh, yeah, sorry. The fear is that the China-U.S. cybersecurity standoff continues. It's come too late for Silicon Valley companies, which are already suffering financially thanks to NSA activities. Microsoft said in January at its fourth physical quarter earnings that China fell short of its expectations, which Chief Executive Santa Nadella, I think I pronounced that right, described as a set of geopolitical issues that the company was working through. He did not elaborate. Most frequently, HP said on Tuesday at its first physical quarter earnings call that it had, quote, execution issues in China thanks to the, quote, tough market with increasing competition from local vendors approved by the Chinese government. But one company stands out. Cisco probably suffered the worst of all. Earlier this month, at its fiscal second quarter earnings, the network giant said it took a 19% revenue ding in China and claims the NSA was installing backdoors and implants on its routers in transit. China remains a vital core geography for most U.S. technology giants with a global reach. But until some middle ground can be reached between the two governments, expect Silicon Valley struggles in the country to only get worse. Well, there's a shock. I do Wait. like in that story how they're going, but the Chinese tried to do it. And you're <laughs> like, know. yeah, yeah, that's exactly why they're complaining. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like you stopped them doing it, so they're stopping you doing it. I mean, exactly. What the hell? I know. You, you can hardly complain when you get caught. Well, <laughs> yeah, but people do all the time. <laughs> and let's be honest, what is the reality? What are the chances they would have been caught if there hadn't been somebody blowing the whistle on this? I think the chances are pretty slim. We would have found some things. You know, there are some people who just watch this stuff. Pull it apart, look at it, dissect it, and understand it in ways I'm never going to. But I don't think we would have found stuff that goes into the detail that we have. Yeah. You know, and that's like a huge thing. And I don't blame China for being sort of oogie about our technology, knowing that we do what we do. No, I don't at all. Um, yeah. Let's see. I think. Jeannie, any thoughts? Well, are you. This isn't the only story like this. <laughs> I have. I, I know. Downloads tonight. I know. And none of it is surprising. No. That's that's honestly the worst part of this is that none of this shocks me at all. Oh, uh, here's one. How about we do the DA story? Is any of, before I even start, is any of that shocking to anybody who's reading along with me? No. No, Janie? No. Okay. DA agents had sex parties with prostitutes, watchdog says. <laughs> This isn't surprising either. No. Agents of the Drug Enforcement Administration reportedly had, quote, sex parties with prostitutes hired by drug cartels in Colombia, according to a new Inspector General report released by the Justice Department on Thursday. In addition, Colombian police officers allegedly provided protection for the DEA agents' weapons and property during the parties, the report states. Ten DEA agents later admitted attending the parties, and some of the agents received suspensions of two to ten days. 
The stunning allegations are part of an investigation by the Justice Department's Inspector General into claims of sexual harassment and misconduct within the DEA, FBI, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, and the U.S. Marshal Service. The IG's office found that the DEA did not fully cooperate with its probe. The Congressional Committee, charged with federal oversight, is already promising hearings and an investigation into the allegations. House Oversight and Government Reform Committee Chairman Jason Chavez told Politico on Thursday he wanted the agencies involved to swiftly fire those involved and that his panel would immediately start digging into the allegations. You can't ignore this. This is terribly embarrassing and fundamentally not right, the Utah Republican said. We need to understand what's happening with the culture. Anytime you bring a foreign national into your room, you're asking for trouble. The Congressional Committee was first briefed on the IG report on Wednesday. The House is about to depart on a two-week recess, but Chavez says there would be major action coming from the oversight panel when the House returns in April. We have to understand the issue. We have to understand issue by issue what is happening. We need to understand how these people are being held accountable. There should be no question about the severity of the punishment, Chavez says. I don't care how senior the person is. They're going to have to let these people go. The oversight panel is also investigating allegations into the Secret Service. The agents there hired prostitutes in Colombia while advancing a trip for President Barack Obama. The oversight committee will hold a hearing on April 14th at 10 a.m. and the DEA and DOJ inspector generals are invited to testify. Moreover, the report states that the DEA, ATF, Marshall Service repeatedly failed to report all risky or improper sexual behavior to security personnel at those agencies. The report covers the period from 2009 to 2012, although some of the incidents occurred long before that. The DEA sex parties in Colombia, though, are by far the most damning allegations. The foreign officer allegedly arranged sex parties with prostitutes funded by local drug cartels for these DEA agents at their government-leased headquarters over a period of several years, the IG report says. The parties reportedly took place from 2005 to 2008, but the DEA's Office of Professional Responsibility became aware of them only in 2010 after it received an anonymous complaint... DEA supervisors, however, had been aware of the allegations for several years because of complaints from management of the building in which the DEA office in Bogota was located. Although some of the DEA agents participating in these parties denied it, the information in the case file suggested they should have known that prostitutes in attendance were paid with cartel funds. A foreign officer also allegedly provided protection for the DEA agents' weapons and property during the parties, the report said. The foreign officers further alleged that in addition to soliciting prostitutes, three DEA SSAs in particular were provided money, expensive gifts, and weapons from the drug cartel members. The IG's office asserts that the DEA officials did not fully comply with their request for information during the probe. We're also concerned by an apparent decision by the DEA to withhold information regarding a particular open misconduct case, the report stated. The OIG was not given access to this case file information until several months after our request and only after the misconduct case was closed. Once we became aware of the information, we interviewed DEA employees who said they were given the impression that they were not to discuss the case with the OIG while the case remained open. The report adds, 
Therefore, we cannot be completely confident that the FBI and DEA provided us with all information relevant to this review. As a result, our report reflects the findings and conclusions we reached based on the information made available to us. Spokespersons for the DEA and ATF said the agencies would not comment on the report and referred all questions to the Justice Department. The department is already working with the law enforcement components to ensure a zero-tolerance policy on sexual harassment. Really? Sexual harassment? Um, Sexual harassment, sexual misconduct. is enforced in that incidents are properly reported. The department is also committed to ensuring the proper preservation and disclosure of electronic communications, including text messages and images, said Patrick Roden Bush, a spokesperson for the Department of Justice. Other allegations <laughs> outlined in the report include a deputy U.S. marshal entered into a romantic relationship with a fugitive spouse and would not break off the relationship for more than a year, even after being told by supervisors to end it. An ATF director of industry operations had solicited, solicited consensual sex with anonymous partners and modified a hotel room door to facilitate sexual play. The ATF employee even disabled a hotel's fire detection system when caught by the hotel, said he had done it before. For over three years, an ATF program manager failed to report allegations that two training instructors were having consensual sex with their students. According to the incident report, the program manager learned that the same instructors had engaged in substantially the same activities three years earlier, but had merely counseled the training instructors without reporting the alleged activities to the Internal Affairs Division. You know, when the corruption is so bad that everybody goes, I'm not surprised... (laughs) (laughs) maybe that's the story well see the moral of the story is if you work for a government department there are lots of hookers (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's the moral of the story Um, well the bit I loved in that story was the bit about how people aren't reporting it properly (laughs) well of course they're not going to (laughs) report it yeah. You know, it I just mean, it, yeah, yeah. Go to the office in the morning. Yeah, boss. Yeah, yeah. I had sex with some hookers. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. The, really, the people are going to be open about it, aren't they? Mm. Uh, yeah. I don't know. And Jeannie, you were saying <laughs> I didn't really hear what you said earlier. Uh, I said they all work for the government, so by nature, all of them are horse to start with, right? I guess. <laughs> I mean, it. It's pretty bad. Uh, this is. Pretty bad. I mean, the headline just kind of caught my eye. I was like, oh, that that's interesting reading. And it kind of was. You know, the office of the inspector general, we talk about him a lot on this show. I kind of feel bad for that guy. <laughs> he no, doesn't ever get I, to tell you good I, news. He does very much, Jan. Huh? You might feel bad for him, but I don't think that guy does very much. Well, he reports on government corruption. He must be busy as shit all the time. Yeah. I don't. Think uh, I, I think um, all government employees, you know, should they should be reporting all the stuff they get up to. I bet <laughs> senators wouldn't like that. I bet there's a lot of hookers there too. Well, you know, hookers, dead bodies in lakes. Jesus. Yeah. And Jen wants to know if she's a pimp because she's trying to get a lobbyist in Massachusetts. <laughs> no, that's oh, compl- no, that's no, completely that. different. That's completely different. 
um, lobbyists are just unfortunately what we're left with as vapors because we we don't speak the language of corruption. Um, but these people um, speak our language and the language of corruption pretty well, and they know how to 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 trade favors for favors. I think that's that's a sad commentary on the government. It's not a sad commentary on us. I, I think for- it's really sad that if we actually want to try to get something done, um, that we're going to have to resort to hiring lobbyists. Well, you know, that that shows you what grassroots actually does. <laughs> Unfortunately. Because I'm a big grassroots fan. Uh, everything I've done before I was ever with um, all the advocacy work I did was with grassroots groups but even even they you know can only do so much even they have to resort to lobbyists and no one wants to hear that but that's like a sad reality and that's just kind of the way it is and that is because the political process is so corrupted and rotten at the core no, it's not, it's certainly not what anyone who founded any government planned on it being, I don't think. Or if they did, they are cruel bastards. If this was their plan, they are cruel bastards. Put it that way. At least I'm on the good bit of the, good bit of the political life at the minute. Uh, yeah. our, our, our election campaign officially started in the UK today. So right. technically, for the next six weeks, we don't have any MPs. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so you're living the life of an anarchist there. Yeah, yeah. We've got no <laughs> politicians at the moment. It's great. Oh, wow. They'll, they'll all be wandering about, appearing on TV shows, and trying to get you to like them for the next six weeks. So. <laughs> you should like me. I'm, I'm totally likable. So did anybody, before? I guess before we get Alex, did anybody see this on my page? Yesterday, I stuck it up, and I think only one person reacted to it. Uh, don't know. <laughs> okay, um, uh, Georgia Lawmaker wants to ban mermaids, werewolves. Oh yeah, I saw that. Yes, and other fictional creatures from real life. A lawmaker in Georgia wants to ban mermaids, centaurs, werewolves, and other half-human, half-animal creatures that don't exist. But he's not talking about banning them from bookshelves or theater screens. No state representative, Tom Kirby, Republican of Gwinnett, is proposing legislation that would prohibit scientists from attempting to create human-animal hybrids in laboratories by experimenting with DNA. If you're hoping that the miracles of modern science will one day allow you to meet a mermaid in real life, you're probably out of luck. Those type of creatures should remain in the realm of mythology, Kirby told WXIA-TV in Atlanta, I say no, and that's what this bill is really about, he told the TV station. It's a shame Stephen Colbert isn't doing his show anymore because Kirby's interview with WXIA is full of potential comedic gold. When it comes to mermaids, Kirby says humans shouldn't try to create them, but if they exist, that's fine. He applies the same standard to werewolves, If they're naturally occurring in the environment, that's fine. So there's no need to get all worked up over there. They elected this guy? 
Team Jacob. Please, we elected a son of a bitch who worried about Guam capsizing. Don't <laughs> let's not talk about this. What? Oh my God! You don't know about the Guam capsizing? Give me a Jeannie, Can you pick up from where I am, and I will get the Guam capsizing video and let let Barry <laughs> play it for us. <laughs> uh, he applies the same standard to werewolves if they are if they. They're naturally occurring in the environment. That's fine. There's no need to get all worked up over there, Team Jacob. That's fucking funny, Jim. But he's not, <laughs> he's not so forgiving about centaurs, which Kirby says have a bad attitude. You know, I really don't like centaurs, he says. We've got enough people with bad attitudes as it is. Jesus. <laughs> You just wanted me to read this, so you can sit there laughing. This crazy shit. No, I'm I'm getting the the capsizing wand <laughs> video. Also, Go ahead. Okay, he is also trying to ban glow in the dark people, theoretically made by splicing together jellyfish DNA with a human, which is bad news for comic book super villains like Doctor Manhattan. All joking aside, this seems like it could actually be a pretty good idea. It's just a bit of a shame that it has to be written in a law. Hopefully, any scientist capable of this kind of experimentation would have their own ethics to consider before splicing together the world's first living mermaid or centaur. But then again, that didn't stop the Nazis from doing sick experiments on humans and didn't stop the folks in Jurassic Park either. <laughs> But would a piece of legislation stop a mad scientist determined to play Frankenstein and create one of those fantastical creatures of myth? No, probably not. Georgia's state minority leader, Steve Henson, a Democrat from Tucker, worries about the unintended consequences <laughs> of placing limits on what science is allowed to do. Oh, God. Kirby's bill exempts research from the ban. Wait a minute. Whoa. I, oh, my God. <laughs> Kirby's bill exempts research from the ban, so scientists who are playing with animal DNA as a potential cure for human disease would be able to carry on with their experiments. One promising strain of research shows that shark DNA might help cure cancer, for example. Maybe it's unfair to call Kirby a nanny, after all. He is not banning anything that you and I would likely have a chance to do. And his proposal does not deserve to be ridiculed the same way as those that would ban childhood fun or economic activity. But trying to ban things that don't exist is always a good way to end up here, even with the best of intentions. Very, you got the Guam video? Yeah, but I've got to say something first. I've got to say they're already too late because surely that mechanic guy he, he's <laughs> he's some sort of crossbreed between human and hippo <laughs> <laughs> okay this is from 2008 this is representative Hank Johnson who I think was smoking crack let's hear about Guam <laughs> it's widest level is what 12 miles from shore to shore and at its smallest level uh, or smallest uh, uh, location it's uh, 
seven miles uh, between one shore and the other. Is that correct? I don't have the exact uh, dimensions, but uh, to your point, sir, I think Guam is a small island. Very Relative small island and about 24 miles, if I recall, long. So 20, 24 miles long, about seven miles wide at the least widest uh, place on the island and about 20, about 12 miles wide uh, uh, on the widest part of the island. And um, I don't know how many square miles that, that is. Do you happen to know? I don't have that. Uh, figure with me, sir. I can certainly supply it to you if you'd like. Yeah, my, my fear is that uh, the whole island will uh, become so overly populated that it will tip over and, uh, and capsize. Uh, we don't <laughs> anticipate that. The, uh, the Guam population, I think, currently about 175,000, and again, with 8,000 Marines and their families, it's an addition of about 25,000 uh, more uh, into the population. The whole island will uh, become so overly populated that it will tip over and, uh, and capsize. Uh, we don't anticipate that. The, uh, <laughs> it's the video, it's the Admiral trying not to laugh when he's I know. replying. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Aren't we worried that it will capsize? Uh, no. <laughs> that shit was real. See, yes. Seriously, how, how do you guys vote in so many of these people? I, we we you have know, a few crazy politicians, but you guys have got loads <laughs> of them. I know, I know. I mean, you know, yeah, we've got ones that want to ban the island of Dr. Moreau. They they think centaurs have bad attitudes. <laughs> then we've got congressmen who think Guam is going to capsize. Yeah. Um, by the way, last week, I want you to remember that uh, someone wrote a piece that said Congress is our last hope. <laughs> I want you to remember that. Every time you think about that, because I think about that all the time. We, if, we could tell them, you know, if, if, if they don't support vapors, the U.S. will capsize. <laughs> I need well, that link. I need that because <laughs> I seriously have got to spam this shit. <laughs> I can't believe you guys didn't know about that. No, oh, I seriously it, I, I, need to spam this. And, and I heard about it fact, ages ago, yeah. It's funny. Yeah, the fact that these are the fucking people that... <laughs> Oh my God! That These we people have... are keeping an eye on your laws. Mm-hmm. Like... They're making our laws. Yeah. yeah. Actually, um, I remember I was on a a YouTube rampage right before that, and I saw the the one thing that I think made me become libertarian was seeing Tom McClintock stand up and talk. If if you want to hear a man who actually makes sense in Congress. Go look for Tom McClintock's videos because those are very good. Um, that's let, just him, as I'll a counterpoint. I wouldn't say about the crazy as at least our craziest exponent. At least we never made him a politician. Mr. Ike. Well, 
<laughs> yeah, but he's like still sinking, allowed to I move around. Too. But he's still around, allowed to move around freely. Um, yeah. Although, you know, I'm not a fan of David Icke, but it, it, his theory makes a lot more sense that these people aren't Which actually. Theory? He's got hundreds of them. Well, his theory that uh, every politician on Earth is reptilian and yeah. they all want to eat people. Which so we're, just still, kinda... we're still waiting to see if Aaron will sink. <laughs> the giant kind... lump of, you know, volcanic rock still has not managed to uh, dissolve in the water. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if people haven't heard of David Icke, they should go look him up. He's funny. David Icke is is very interesting. Um, he stopped wearing has... that pink color all the time now, though. Oh, that's nice. I mean, he's been right on some things. If your 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 news, your major news sources are to be believed yeah. about the pedophilia rings, then he was right about that. But he's very, 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 very wrong on some things. The, you, the my, my theory on David Icke, right? He was most notable in the UK for being a snooker commentator, and I think it just sort of sent him a bit crazy. I don't know. I, all the time. <laughs> I think Ike is just. Well, I think it. I, well, maybe very. Maybe he'd have stayed sane if it was just you know eight ball or nine ball because at least <laughs> he'd have had more than two colors. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the guy is definitely not right. <laughs> but like I said, he's been right about some things and really, really wrong about others. Yeah, I think the things he was right about. I think he was just lucky guesses. Guessing? Yeah, I was just guessing. Yeah, I think BBC is having pedophilia rings. Oh, shit. David Icke was right. Yeah. Well, good guess, well, I guess. Get, uh, he has to get something right occasionally. <laughs> so what you're saying is he's like a broken clock. Yeah. He's right twice a day. Okay. So that's something I didn't think we would ever talk about on this show, David Icke. But there you go. Well, it was the whole island sinking thing, you know. Well, yeah. Well, that that guy is just as bad as David Icke, I guess. But he does sound like he's drunk, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, representative. At worst, um, possibly way more than drunk. Yeah. Maybe instead of Tic Tacs, he confused it with his Oxycontin bottle. <laughs> I, I don't okay. know. But please, it was remember, please remember, this is uh, Representative Hank Johnson, who is a Democrat from Georgia. Did did uh, very give you the link, Jeannie, yes. or no? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I put that. <laughs> yeah. I put that shit out. <laughs> okay. Well, I I figured you would want to. Um. So yeah. Oh yeah. my God! You're leaving. You're you're linking to David Ike's YouTube. Don't do that. You <laughs> <laughs> oh don't do that. Thomas um, is bored. We better move on. Okay. Um. It, it's actually almost time to let me see if Alex is ready. Yeah. We just talked about David Ike. Are you ready, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'll love that. Uh, do you want me to bring him on? Um. If he's ready. Right. Let's see. See if he replies. Okay. Mixler just told me that VP Live is broadcasting. (laughs) Wow. That's awesome. And there's Alex. 
Hi, Alex. How are you? Good. How's it going? Oh, good. You you couldn't have come on after a better segment. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I missed it. I was reading legislation. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, we just talked about the capsizing of Guam, among other things. So... Uh, <laughs> welcome to the CASA update for the week of 3-30-2015. And um, with me is Alex Clark. Hi, Alex. How are you this evening? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, what's upcoming? Oh man! Um, in order of appearance, um, sure. <laughs> uh, still looking after things in Arkansas. Um, I, I actually, and things are moving quickly there, so it could have very well um, gone to a vote in the House today. I'm not sure. Um, I know it moved out of committee with an amendment. Um, that bill is still kind of a disaster. Um, but uh, things were changed, so it's not. I I don't even know if I'm comfortable going on record saying it's not a complete disaster, um, because no matter what, it kind of laid it's, the groundwork for some horrible things. So it's not totally Armageddon yet, maybe. No. Okay. It's placing a lot of faith in a few people in, I guess, the Arkansas Tobacco Control. Um. And, uh, that's not, that's, that's never really a good thing. It's kind of like that. It's, it's kind of like the FDA saying, you know, we're going to pass these regulations, but we're not going to enforce anything for two years. And, you know, even then we'll be kind of cool about it, man. You know, that's not, <laughs> it's really not good policy. Um, so, uh, anyway, the, the Arkansas thing is something that we're following. There, there may not really be any more opportunities for action. We're not entirely certain, um, this was a bill that was being pushed by the governor, um, and uh, appeals to the governor may not be very productive. Um, we'll see. Okay. Um, there's certainly there may or may not be an opportunity to make some more noise in Arkansas. So we'll we'll just we'll be following that. Stay tuned, kids. Um, so that's Arkansas. Texas is or did happen today. Um, Kind of an interesting ongoing conversation there. Uh, multiple bills. I'm not going to list them, um, but there was a handful of bills that addressed the issue of prohibiting sales to minors, and um, you know the effort was to uh, make sure that that could happen, but uh, do it in a way that didn't impact access to adults. Um, so we, we issued a call to action this morning, um, sort of a general message going to, uh, the committee on public health and, uh, everybody's representatives, uh, just without naming any bills specifically, because we're not entirely certain which bill is going to come out of this as, as the vehicle for this legislation, um, so uh, we just wanted to send a, a message of general support for prohibiting sales to minors, but expressing the need to uh, to not place barriers to adult access. Um, 
So again, another situation. Stay tuned, Texas. Um, this is uh, an ongoing and developing situation. Mud flap. That means. <laughs> Flaps in chat. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, and so for this week, what do we got? Um, I know uh, Greg actually just shot us a message. Uh, there are a couple of bills in Nevada uh, coming up this week. Um, looks like there is an indoor use ban, uh, SB 201. Uh, that will be heard in the Senate Judiciary Committee on Wednesday. Okay. Um, so we'll be scrambling to get something out probably tonight. Um, this is another one that employs the use of the word electronic smoking device, and um, which it and it, this coming from Nevada just really. I, I mean, I know that all of Nevada is not Las Vegas, mm-hmm. but um, you know. It's Las Vegas. I mean, <laughs> come on, like, yeah. you know, the the last bastion of sin and vice. It just, you know, <laughs> you eh, you want to prohibit smoking in Nevada. It just doesn't. It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, and of course, lumping electronic cigarettes into that makes even less sense. So, um, yeah, that's that's coming up. Uh, apparently, there's also a clean bill to prohibit sales to minors. Um, whether or not that needs any support remains to be seen, but uh, at least something good is happening in Nevada. <sighs> oh, what else did we have? Um, I believe it is Connecticut. Um, there was some movement on one of the bills. Um, uh, Bill 6283. Um, I think this may have been dialed back to an indoor use ban. Um, but uh, this was one of the ones. I just have to bring up our, uh, our, our call to action here. Um, I think this is the one that had the flavor ban and a bunch of other crazy stuff in it. Um yeah, this was this was the one that uh, would redefine vapor products as tobacco products. Uh, this would have prohibited flavors. Uh, there would have been marketing restrictions, manufacturing standards, um, labeling requirements, and a warning label requirement, um, as as well as uh, a use ban in where smoking is prohibited. Um, so apparently. That has been dialed back. Uh, I haven't actually had a chance to look over this, but um, it's still it's still something that we would oppose. Um, but uh, so that's I don't know movement in it's kind of a lateral move. I don't know if you really think about it. Um, but uh, apparently, everybody writing in and participating has has caught the attention of lawmakers in Connecticut. So. Um, keep it up. That's good. Um, let's see. Uh, coming up on Wednesday, uh, Delaware. Uh, yes, SB. Is it SB five or HB five? HB five, House Bill five, uh, is an indoor use ban, um, and that would prohibit use everywhere indoors, including vapor shops. 
Um, so uh, we have a call to action up for that now. And uh, anyone in Delaware within the sound of my voice, please participate in our call to action. Reach out to your lawmakers and let them know uh, what's going on. Actually, as I'm reading this now, I do believe. So this had, uh, there's an update to this. Um, Okay, sorry. I'm, uh. Yeah, SB is Senate bill and HB is House bill. Yeah, sorry. Those who are curious. No worries. Um, So uh, I'll leave it at that. Uh, We've actually already discussed this in our call to action. uh, And um, that's it. I I think. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm getting, I'm also getting Skype messages while I'm doing this. So I I don't know what I am supposed to and not supposed to talk about. So no worries. Um, (laughs) I'm going to read. I think I'm safe to say, go to, go to read our call to action and take action. Okay. Um, I'm just going to read something from the chat, uh, live Oregon Senate committee ongoing now on SB 14 and 16 work session. It's available to watch at uh, OregonGranius.com media player, (laughs) which I I can't even type it all out, but um, it's, you can search for Senate committee on healthcare 2015-0330 in Oregon. If you're curious and um, Massachusetts is coming up next month. So yay. (laughs) Massachusetts. I, 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 I really wish they were more reasonable. I wish they didn't have the structure that they had, but they do, unfortunately. And uh, a lot of the, it seems like a lot of the New England bands, um, they all seem to work with the same DJ Wilson fellow, and they all seem to flow through this mayor's committee. Um, if you want to, if you were curious and you wanted to look up someone who was um, most associated with, with most of the tobacco and, and vaping bans and policies, you would look up the name DJ Wilson, just type it into Google DJ Wilson tobacco control and just follow all the links. Your mind will be blown. Um, he's one busy little dude. He must be like their Greg Connolly. You know what I mean? Very busy man. Um, I, I don't even know what to say anymore. It just, it's every week it's like, um, okay, so open the spreadsheet of doom and, uh, see what's going on. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty heavy stuff. And they're really, I think this is the worst legislative season I've ever seen. And, um, I bet you're looking forward to it being over. Um, I have mixed feelings about it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll miss it. The lack of sleep. (laughs) Well, it's, you know, just because the state legislatures go on their break, it doesn't mean that the locals, uh, stop. And, uh, it just seems to be kind of picking up. I mean, it, it, there's a little bit of feast or famine happening with, with the local stuff. Um, and, and that's really, I think ultimately, 
just as, if not potentially more threatening because, you know, the local, local lawmakers don't seem to have the same level of accountability. Um, and, uh, and we don't, there is no, there, there's no software we can buy to get alerts at the local level. Um, and, and so it, it's, it really is important to have people engaged uh, at, at least monitoring their city councils mm-hmm. for stuff like this. I mean, we get a certain amount of intel, but I, I just found out today that Savannah, Georgia has an indoor use ban um, <laughs> and, and uh, that includes vapor shops. And um, I, I mean, I may have seen an email about that uh, several months ago, but um, it's just, you know, it's impossible to keep for, you know, a couple of people to keep track of all this stuff. Well, it is. And I I think it was because you've seen the amount of stuff I read every day. I mean, I read a few hundred articles just for Mm -hmm. fun every day, (laughs) trying to keep up on this stuff. And it was just last week, a couple of towns in Massachusetts gave full control to their board of health to enact um, vaping and smoking legislation. Full control. Just turned that responsibility from the city council right over to the board of health. That's not good. That's what they do in, in Massachusetts, right? I mean, um, yeah, but you don't generally see six towns do it at once. Oh yeah. No. That's unusual. So it's, it's part of somebody's master plan there. Um, not right. really quite sure who's. What um, about the six towns turning over the ability of their they turned over the city council's responsibility to make laws to their board of health? And it was six towns did it in one day. They gave them the full ability to make legislation uh, in regards to smoke free places and vaping, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's it's pretty pretty bad so um i mean all i can tell people is i read a lot of this stuff every day when you see a story in your local paper or your local online paper about and you see smoking in the title please don't pass it by really read it because you're the only ones who can tell us when there's something local going on the state stuff you can look up some of that stuff the stuff that's happening in state houses, the stuff that's happening happening at a congressional level, the stuff that's happening at a level with the FDA, we can really keep well informed on all that stuff. But it's the local stuff we're really having a hard time pinning down and finding. It's like trying to catch a greased pig. You get lucky once in a while reading a story, but it really is you guys letting us know that there's a problem. So help us to help you. Um, uh, like I said last week, um, if you haven't joined CASA yet, please join CASA. Um, you can come visit us on our official Facebook page at um, facebookcasa.org. You can come join the unofficial group at We Are CASA on Facebook. You can follow us at CASA Media on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I think we're Kasa Media on Google+. Um, so 
if you haven't joined CASA yet, please come join us and submit your testimonials at testimonials at CASA.org. Um, we need you. <laughs> we want to win this for you, but we need you to come and join us. So please come and join us. Um, I guess that's it for this week. No, I have I have two more things. Oh, you do? <laughs> okay. Great. S- surprise legislation. Yay. Um, it's, it's not a surprise, actually. Someone brought it up, and it, okay. it's the or- Oregon Bills, uh, SB 415 um, and uh, SB uh, 416 I haven't looked into yet. Um, uh, that's That may or may not actually affect us. I, I don't want to speak to that directly, but I know that SB 415, uh, as it's written in our call to action was amended to remove, uh, vapor products or, or mm-hmm. the amendment is being proposed. And I believe people are watching that hearing right now. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, even if that does happen, we are still, uh, urging people to oppose this bill just as strongly because this includes a flavor ban on smokeless tobacco products as well. Um, which has not been amended out. Um, so uh, everyone should still be following 415 and still voicing opposition to it. Um, so that's the Oregon bit. Um, California is coming up next week. Uh, SB 140 is going into uh, going to be heard in committee. Um, this is essentially a, a comprehensive indoor use ban. Um, it's hard for me to talk about it without actually reading uh, uh, NorCal Safata's call to action on it. But uh, okay. we will be releasing a call to action for that soon. Um, and uh, just a huge shout out to Stefan Didak and uh, all the crew out there for putting together what they're putting together. Um, I think they're doing a fantastic job. And uh, it's uh, really remarkable the amount of attention that they're garnering for this. Um, so I think that's it. <laughs> and there'll be some, there's a couple of local alerts coming out, uh, I believe, uh, one for the beginning of next week. There's some stuff coming up for next week locally, okay. which I'll, I'll oh. put in our fantastic spreadsheet of doom. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll check that after the show and, um, uh look for missing pieces. I, I did pretty good last week finding that uh, proposed legislation. I was proud of myself. <laughs> nice. So um, I will look at that later after I'm done here. Cool. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, thank you everyone for listening. Um, you are Kasa. Oh, and the testi- testimonials project. <laughs> I mentioned that. Submit your testimonials at testimonials at casa.org. There you go. Okay. <laughs> go, go, go tear yourself away and do something normal. Yeah, I'm going to try. Okay. I'll speak with you later. Cool. Thanks. Thank you. Have a great night. See ya. See ya. It's really. <laughs> It just doesn't stop. These freaking people just don't stop. No. No. And I don't think they're going to. Um, So, um, there are two points of view on Section 215. 
If you don't know what Section 215 is, you have not read the Patriot Act, which I have. So there are two diametrically opposed thoughts on the bulk telephone collection. And I'm going to read two stories about it. And uh, (laughs) I think we'll all be siding with the second story. White House confirms if Section 215 expires, so does bulk phone records collection. There's some good news coming from the White House today that deserves repeating. Reuters is reporting that Ned Price, a spokesman from the President's National Security Council, has unequivocally stated, quote, If Section 215 sunsets, we will not continue the bulk telephony metadata program. Section 215 of the Patriot Act is the authority of the NSA, with the FBI's help, has interpreted to allow the U.S. government to vacuum up the call records of millions of innocent people. It expires on June 1st. Some journalists and privacy advocates have speculated that even if Section 215 were to expire, in the absence of other legislation, bulk collection could continue under Section 102B of Public Law 109-177 which some have said would allow investigations that began before the expiration of Section 215 to continue. In November, Charlie Savage at the New York Times reported that the provision could mean that, quote, as long as there was an older counterterrorism investigation still open, the court could keep issuing Section 215 orders to phone companies indefinitely for that investigation. We agree with the ACLU Deputy Director, Jamil Jafir, Oh, God, I wish he had a name in his last, uh, an A in his last name, because Return of Jaffa was just a funny movie. Um, That it would be perverse to interpret the exemption as permitting the government to bootstrap itself into permanent Section 215 authority. Quote, but do we think that looking for loopholes in the language that governs surveillance makes perfect sense? After all, the government's twisted interpretation of words related to surveillance is well documented. That's why we're pleased to see this announcement. If the importance of the June 1st expiration of Section 215 wasn't already apparent, it's clear now. With the clock ticking, Congress is running out of time to pass legislation that will reform bulk surveillance. In fact, despite the administration's push for reform legislation, it looks increasingly likely that the next vote Congress will face on NSA spying is the June 1st sunset. That's why contacting Congress about the vote is so important. Lawmakers should understand that their vote is a statement about where they stand on the Constitution. And while the White House also claims in its comments to routers that Section 215 is a critical security tool, the administration's own presidential review group stated in a report, there's a PDF in that one, Um, The information contributed to the terrorist investigations by the use of Section 215 telephony metadata was not essential to preventing attacks. Unless the administration is playing some kind of word games with critical and essential, as it has with other words, it's pretty clear that if Section 215 isn't even essential, it's hardly critical. Other analysis of Section 215, both from the government and from outside researchers, have come to the same conclusion. If you agree that it's time to end mass surveillance, contact Congress. There's a link from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, And tell them what you expect to see. 
a no vote on reauthorization of Section 215 on June 1st, along with some real comprehensive reform to NSA spying. Okay. Here's the other viewpoint from Zero Day. That was from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which great people. I love them. I love the work they do. I love to talk about them. I like to give them money and support them. Not on everything, of course, because we don't agree on everything, but we agree on most of the important issues. U.S. to stop collecting bulk records? Not really. There's a catch. (laughs) There's a shock. Even if a critical and controversial legal authority expires later this year, the U.S. government will still be able to collect billions of domestic calls, call records on Americans. That's from Zero Day. The U.S. government will stop collecting billions of domestic call records each year should the legal authority expire later this year. But a loophole and a secret court order would allow the government to carry on spying on U.S. citizens regardless of whether or not it has legal grounds. According to Reuters on Monday, a spokesperson for the Obama administration's NSA Council ceded that it may have to wind down the bulk phone records collection program despite it being a critical national security tool. Allowing Section 215, the law that allows the collection to sunset, would result in the loss going forward of a critical national security tool that is used in a variety of additional contexts that do not involve the collection of bulk data. Spokesperson Ned Price told the news agency. Let's call it what it is. It's the pillaging of your digital papers. Section 215 of the Patriot Act, which authorizes the National Security Agency to collect calling records from phone companies in bulk, so-called quote-unquote metadata, expires on June 1st. The existence of the phone records program was revealed by whistleblower Edward Snowden, who leaked a secret court order compelling Verizon to hand over its entire cache of customer records on a rolling basis. However, little stands in the way of the NSA continuing to use phone records programs to conduct domestic surveillance after June 1st. A similarly secretive court order declassified and released by the Foreign Intelligence Services Court earlier this month suggests that Congress does not need to extend the legal authority in order for the government to carry on using the program. First reported, first reported by the National Journal earlier this month, a passage buried in the final pages of the order may allow the court to rubber stamp the continued use of the program. If Congress controversially has not enacted legislation amending Section 215 or extending its sunset date, the government is directed to provide a legal memorandum addressing the power of the court to grant such authority beyond June 1, 2015, it rates. The NSA did not respond to comment at the time of this writing. Some of the more privacy-minded members of Congress are acutely aware of the risks of not acting on the Patriot Act's sunset provisions, whether it expires or not. Representative Zoe Lofgren, Democrat of California 19th District, whose California district houses some of the technology powerhouses of the world, warned in an earlier phone conversation with ZNet that the lawmakers have to act regardless of the authority upcoming expiration. Lofgren explained that she and other lawmakers were, quote, mindful of the law and warned its lapsing would not solve the problem of certain kinds of surveillance. Her colleague, Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, a key figure in the post-Snowden battle to reform the intelligence agencies, first disclosed in a mid-2013 
that the U.S. government was using a loophole to conduct surveillance on Americans. The so-called backdoor search loophole was later covered in more detail by The Guardian, citing a document leaked by whistleblower Edward Snowden that allowed the NSA to search U.S. citizens' emails and phone calls without a warrant. Whether Section 215 expires or not, the Fourth Amendment rights of Americans are still at risk, Lofgren said. What Fourth Amendment rights? I know what the document says, but really, what Fourth Amendment rights? If they can still do it, and if they're actually ordered by a court statement to make sure it still continues, then what Fourth Amendment rights do you really have? Well, yeah, I mean, they're all on about, oh, the expiry date. It's like, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. Even if it expires, they'll find another loophole to expose. Yeah. That's what they do. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it is what they do. And, um, the, you know, it's the security apparatus that we have no say over. Your country, my country, all of these things. I mean, it's been called various things like the shadow government, which I don't even know if you can call it that. Um, the, the deep, oh, hell, there was a really good story a couple of years ago, and um, this reporter, who I'm not a huge fan of, because he is one of those reporters who I think directly contributed to a lot of the problems we have in this country by, I don't want to say sharing false stories, but by highly backing the government's point of view, did something really spectacular. And... Um, he had someone on to talk about the government you don't see. And it it wasn't crazy. It wasn't weird. This was a guy who worked for the, you know, basically the security apparatus in this country. And he talked for about an hour about what it was really like, what this government was like. And he'd written a book on it. And the man has the most annoying voice I've ever heard. Um, uh, the man I'm talking about is Bill Moyers, by the way, and I'm going to stick a link in chat. Um, okay. It's from BillMoyers.com, and the story is called The Deep State Hiding in Plain Sight. The book is a great book. The man that you have to listen talking and droning on makes you want to put a bullet in your ear. But what he's telling you is pretty important. These people are unelected. They're doing a job they weren't elected to do. Therefore, what governs us is something we have no oversight over. We have a problem. This is why I talk about when we do things, the best chance we have of affecting change is trying to do it on a local level. Uh, Unless, of course, that's completely corrupted, like you see in Massachusetts. Um, In which case, it gets really harder and then... You've got to do it at micro-local levels, which doesn't sound easy, and it's not easy, but it involves getting out and talking to your neighbors and making friends with people, affecting change on a, like, street-by-street basis if you have to. Eventually, that change will grow, and no one likes to hear that. Everyone wants all the corruption to be ended tomorrow, and that's not how any of this works. None of it is easy, and it all requires work, and no one wants to do it. But unless you want to be controlled by something like the deep state forever, you want your kids to be controlled by something like the deep state forever, 
you have to do something. You have to. Even at the most micro-local level, you have to try and affect some kind of change. Otherwise, the future is a boot stomping on a face forever. Okay. Now that we've had that bit of brevity... (laughs) (laughs) Um... God, I don't even know where to go here. There's so many really not great stories this week. So we talked about the NSA. We talked about the TSA. We talked about, you know, the government sex parties. Um, what do you want to do next? Stingray or Spot Shotter? Stingray, because very likes the music. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, uh, we're going to do the Stingray story from Blotter next, the Blot magazine. So, stand by for action. We are about to launch Stingray. find old episodes of that show online by the way <laughs> did the show's funny it but, is but not in a laugh out loud way no it's just it, weird it, it is it's humorous it's kind of cute jerry anderson yes bought to you in puppet vision yes <laughs> okay exclusive stingray maker asked fcc to block release of spy gear manual there's a shocker After a six-month investigation, the Blot magazine obtained a heavily redacted copy of a top-secret manual revealing Stingray and Kingfish surveillance gear. The Florida-based manufacturer... Fucking course. Why is it always Florida? The Florida-based manufacturer of computer hardware and communications equipment used by government agencies attempted to block the public release of documents last year related to a once-secret cell phone surveillance device distributed to federal, state, and local law enforcement. In an October 2014 letter sent to the Federal Communications Commission, Harris Corporation Executive Tanya Hanna asked the agency to withhold documents related to its Stingray and Kingfish surveillance equipment from public disclosure because the records contained, quote, trade secrets and information about law enforcement techniques. Harris argued that the documents sought user manuals requested by Blot Magazine under the Freedom of Information Act qualified for exemption because the documents had previously been kept secret in a criminal case. The Blot filed the FOIA request with the FCC last September. 
a heavily redacted copy of a 2010 user manual covering both Stingray and Kingfish devices was delivered by the FCC last week and is being published, well, if you click on the link here for the first time. A Stingray is a radio interception device that, when deployed, forces cell phones in a given area to connect to it instead of a legitimate communications tower. And we talked about the problems that can cause when it shuts off 911 relay. A computer attached to Stingray allows investigators to access a trove of data from intercepted cell phones, including call and messaging logs, geolocation data, and handset information. A Kingfish is a less expensive, more portable version of a Stingray. Some records indicate that while a Stingray is intended to be mounted in and controlled from a vehicle, a Kingfish can be remotely controlled and can even be worn by its user. Records reviewed by the blot reveal that Harris first began manufacturing the devices for use by U.S. military analysts in the early 2000s. One of the company's earliest buyers of cell phone spy equipment was the U.S. Navy, which could explain how the Harris-made surveillance gear got its aquatic nicknames. In the mid-2000s, Harris began distributing its battleground intelligence equipment to federal and local law enforcement for use in domestic criminal investigations. A purchase order obtained by LA Weekly showed that the Los Angeles Police Department obtained cell phone surveillance equipment using federal grant money in 2006. The application specifically mentioned Stingray and Kingfish devices by name. In records obtained by LA Weekly, the LAPD said the spy gear was purchased for use in regional terrorist-related investigations. Numerous other grant applications obtained since then show a number of law enforcement agencies making the same argument in its request for federal money earmarked for Homeland Security initiatives. But law enforcement agencies are not limiting their use to terrorism investigations. Documents obtained last year by Sacramento TV station KXTV found that Northern California police are using stingrays in routine criminal cases. That's a problem. That is a problem. There's a reason why it's so hard to conduct a traditional criminal investigation and why it takes so many man hours because it's so invasive, because it's so intrusive, because it denies the rights of the person. That's why it's supposed to be hard and difficult and it's not supposed to be easy and it's not supposed to be that everyone's a criminal and everything is exposed and investigated. Sorry, that was just me going off. In some cases, police have been caught using Stingray and other cell phone surveillance devices without securing a warrant and without disclosing its use to a defendant at trial. Such incidents have resulted in judges tossing out the convictions of a number of criminal defendants, including a Florida man who argued that the Tallahassee Police Department's secret use of a stingray violated the Fourth Amendment. I agree with that. Does anybody disagree with that? No. Okay. Last August, the ACLU accused Harris of misleading the FCC after it obtained emails from 2010 that showed that Hannah, an FCC official, Bruce Romero discussed an equipment authorization application for Harris surveillance care, including Stingray and Kingfish devices. The ACLU suggested Harris misled the FCC by asserting that Stingray and Kingfish devices would only be used, quote, in emergency situations by law enforcement officials. 
But sources familiar with Harris's 2010 application told the Blatt that the company had received authorization from the FCC several years before the manufacturer and before to manufacture and sell the devices, specifically as an anti-terrorism tool, and that its application to the FCC's Office of Engineering and Technology was intended to expand that authorization so that police could use it legally, use the device beyond terrorism investigations. The definition of what constituted an emergency was intentionally left vague so that the authorization would cover law enforcement in a wide range of criminal investigations, the source said. The 2010 authorization, which Harris was eventually awarded, was spearheaded by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The Federal Law Enforcement Agency now requires that local and state police sign a non-disclosure agreement with Harris before equipment is purchased and used. The intention of a non-disclosure agreement is unclear, though local law enforcement agencies have routinely cited it as a reason for withholding Stingray-related documents from public inspection. Emails released by the ACLU also show Harris requested the FCC remove any mentions of the word, quote, Stingray and, quote, Kingfish from publicly released documents, including engineering tests and diagrams showing the placement of FCC labels. Instead, Harris requested those documents mention the surveillance equipment by using a unique equipment identifier called an FCC ID. It asked to treat other documents bearing the Stingray and Kingfish names, including photographs and manuals, as confidential material. Using the FCC ID numbers, the Blatt filed an FOIA request with the FCC last September, seeking copies of the user manual for the Stingray, Stingray 2, and Kingfish devices. One month later, the FCC notified Harris that the manuals had been requested and asked the company to provide justification for keeping the documents confidential. On October 20th, Harris Executive Hanna reiterated the company's request for confidentiality, saying... The documents could be withheld under various FOIA exemptions and federal statutes dealing with business records, trade secrets, and law enforcement techniques. As you are aware, public's disclosure of certain material could reasonably put public safety officials at risk, jeopardize integrity, and value investigative techniques and procedures, reveal Harris trade secrets due to the nature of the equipment, and harm Harris's competitive interests, Hannah wrote. In addition, Hannah wrote that the documents did not need to be released because they had been withheld before in public criminal cases. Specifically, Hannah noted the case of Daniel Wow Rigmaiden, who challenged law enforcement's use of a stingray after being charged with tax fraud in 2010. In that case, a judge ruled police did not need to disclose to Rigmaiden how they used a stingray to catch him. Later in the letter, Hannah asserted that the documents did not need to be discussed. (sighs) Oh, my God. Did not need to be discussed. Mm. This is ridiculous. Um... The F- because the FOIA requester in this case has not made a showing, much less a persuasive showing, as to a reason for inspection of this information. The FOIA law does not require individuals to give a reason for requesting public's records. If an agency found against Harris, Hannah requested the FCC return all materials for which confidentiality cannot be provided. 
It is unclear if the agency returned any material to the company. Hannah did not return a request from the blot seeking comment on the issue. In January, an FCC official told the blot by phone that the commission had enlisted another government agency to help redact the Stingray and Kingfish user manuals for eventual public release. The official, who initially requested specific details of the call not be disclosed, refused to identify the outside agency, but said the manuals would likely be delivered within two weeks to the call. On March 23rd, more than six months after the request had been filed and two months after the January call, the FCC delivered a heavily redacted user manual covering Stingray, Stingray 2, and Kingfish devices. The manual, which appears to be the same copy submitted to the FCC by Harris in 2010, reveals the Stingray and Kingfish equipment are likely individual components that comprise a cell phone surveillance kit marketed and sold to the police. The manual indicates that the Stingray and Kingfish devices are sold as part of a larger surveillance kit that includes third-party software and laptops. Tables that contain the names of other equipment is redacted in the copy provided by the FCC, but other records reviewed by the blood indicate that the laptops are manufactured by Dell and Panasonic, while the software is decided designed by Penlink, a company that makes programs for cell phone forensics. Numerous warnings note that the manual is confidential, not for public inspection, and contains information that falls under purview of the International Traffic and Arms Regulation, a federal statute that prohibits certain defense information and equipment from being distributed outside the United States. Harris also warned that the manual may be provided only to government law enforcement agencies or communication service providers, and that the document contains material related to a restricted use item that is associated with the monitoring of cellular transmissions. The later phrasing appears clearly in one section of the manual, despite being redacted on the other pages. None of the other redactions made of the document were explained by the FCC as information withheld pursuant to national security interests. Instead, the FCC explained its redactions through Exemption 4 of the FOIA law, which protects the release of trade secrets and certain confidential business information submitted to the government. The FCC redactions under Exemption 4 include packaging details, charts, diagrams, and operational instructions for the Stingray and Kingfish devices. The redactions also apply to seemingly inconsequential inconsequential information. The letters A, C, and P in the manual's appendix as well as information that has already been public released in other documents. The obvious answer as to why the FCC chose to redact public and seemingly benign information is also the most depressing. Given the choice between the government keeping its top-secret spy toy and encouraging public discourse on civil liberty, protection of privacy, and due process for those accused of breaking the law, the feds would very much like to keep their toy, even if it means breaking the law, breaking the law and keeping the public in the dark. That was very long. Yes. Um, I think every week I say the secret to doing something evil is to bury it in something boring. <laughs> That's the same with legislation. That's the same with um, law enforcement tools. That's the same with technology. All of it's the same. Anything really, really evil is bound to be really, really boring. <laughs> Unfortunately. That's why I read this stuff every week. Because not everybody's up for that. Um, thoughts? Well, yeah. I mean, they're going to keep using this technology until mm-hmm. basically they have it taken away from them. Ahead. Pretty much. 
telling them they're oh it's not legal for you to use it. <laughs> yeah, they, but even then they're, they're just going to use gonna... it anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, they can just write an executive order and use it. Yeah. So, um, I think we have to get better at protecting our privacy. We really do. Um, we talked about it before when I talked about people look at privacy and liberty as separate issues, but they're essentially the same thing. If the Fourth Amendment covers your personal papers and belongings and means that they can't be searched, the same should hold true for your digital papers and belongings that can't be searched without a warrant. Okay, That's a massive infringement on your civil liberties, on your liberties, on basic liberty. And people should be angry about this. I can't yell and scream and cry every week, but I want to. You should get think about this stuff and get good and mad and say something. Because unless people say something en masse and make a big noise about it, it's just going to keep continuing. You know? We all know that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Deployment of a controversial urban sensor system aided by aggressive lobbying. Thank you, Lee Fang. Is NYC's new gunshot detection system recording private conversations? Asked Fusion in a recent story about ShotSpotter, a sensor technology currently being set up in the Bronx and Brooklyn. ShotSpotter sensors use microphone and satellite technology to detect, locate, and report gunshots to police. Critics worry that the microphones are prone to false alarms and more troubling appear to vacuum up street-level conversations in the neighborhoods where it has been installed. Evidence from conversations recorded by spot shotter microphones has been used to prosecute criminals in court. While questions linger for watchdog and privacy groups about the use of shot spotter technology, an aggressive lobbying campaign has helped ensure the devices have been deployed in over 90 cities across the country. The Ferguson Group, a Washington, D.C.-based lobbying firm, boasts that it secured more than $7 million in federal funding to support the purchase of ShotSpotter. Hang on. TFG has conversations with the interested communities and discusses the process and assembles viability of requests, drafts, and provides briefing sheets to communities and submits requests to their House and Senate delegations. Reads a case study posted on the Ferguson Group's website. Shot spotter contacts with four DC lobbying shops, including the powerhouse Squire Patton Boggs and the Rabison Group, the firm that helps orchestrate the mayors against illegal guns an advocacy group closely aligned with former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg and various police unions across the country. The firm also has an array of local and state lobbyists on contract. In New York City, for instance, the company retained Greenberg Trawling in the past and now works with a former aides to Sheldon Silver and Bloomberg through the firm Mercury Group Public Affairs. The company's approach is detailed in emails from Phil Daly, Southeast Regional Sales Director for ShotSpotter to the city of Miami. Daly references a supportive city resolution and lists viable funding mechanisms, including purchasing the technology through the Community-Oriented Policing Program, a special fund administered by the Department of Justice, or through Police Department Assets Forfeiture Money. 
funds often raised through drug busts. Promotional materials also list the DOJ's Justice Assistance Grant Program, public housing agencies, and community benefit funds as potential funding sources. The company has retained two local lobbyists in Miami to help move the process along. The company also maintains close ties with leading law enforcement officials. Shot Spotter Senior Vice President David Chipman is a former senior official at the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, and a former fellow to the International Ambassador of Chiefs of Police. Before returning to New York State Police Department as police commissioner, William J. Bratton served as a board member, board member to Spot Shotter. Batten said he recused himself from the NYPD's decision to embark on a pilot program in New York City this year. The company has downplayed privacy concerns. Shot Spotter Vice President Lydia Barrett asked about conversations recorded by the technology submitted as evidence in court, told South Coast Today that it is, quote, very unusual circumstance if the sensors actually picked up any voices, adding that it's an acoustic sensor. It's not a microphone, and it's only activated when a loud boom or bang happens. However, a WNYC investigation in 2013 found that 75% of the incidents reported by the company were false alarms, alerts in which audio recordings were made, which there was likely no crime in progress. Shot Spotter's own privacy policy explains that it is consistently recording constantly and consistently recording in order to be able to provide police with the audio beginning two seconds before a gunshot and ending four seconds after. Shot Spotter's privacy policy claims this audio is erased and overwritten and lost permanently if the system does not sense a gunshot. However, even if this is true, the policy also states that Spot Shotter has detected and recorded three million incidents over the past ten years. This also indicates that the sensors record a staggering amount at a staggering level of false alarms and that the company has permanently recorded 18 million seconds. In other words, over 5,000 hours or approximately seven months of audio. According to a promotional document emailed to Miami city officials by shot spotters sales team, the technology allows end users to retain audio online for two years and offline for another five. <laughs> I, I love, I love the idiot. <laughs> It's an acoustic sensor. It's not a microphone. It is. That's, That's what, what a microphone is. Big sensor is. I know. <laughs> ah. I, I, you know, I don't even know what to say anymore. I love it how it's oh, it's only calibrated to hear gunshots. No, it's a microphone. It hears everything. Exactly. Anything that makes it vibrate, it records. I mean. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, well, so um, I guess plan A was to drop all new technology and just go meet with people in public. Mm. Probably not on a public street. No, no, no. They, 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 <laughs> they, they did say during that that it was in a basement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Underground parking lots. That's the traditional one. Yeah, yeah well, um, and that's just not what on Valentine's Day. is really kind of depressing i mean it's good to know this stuff so you know what to look for but it's still really kind of sad <coughs> genie jan anything no really 
I, you know, I <laughs> no. read all of this when I read through all of this stuff last night. I'm like, are you got to be fucking kidding me? And then I'm like, oh no, that's right. Jen always sends me really disturbing <laughs> shit to read. And it and it's usually better for the show if I read it the day before because then I calm the fuck down. <laughs> okay. Um I think I'm gonna go with the NYPD commissioner. <laughs> the story. Um because that pissed me off. It's you know, I probably don't need to read the stock market rigging is no longer conspiracy theory story because it's not. Um, it is really funny, though, to see a mainstream economist saying that. Okay. NYPD Commissioner Bratton, privacy advocates have to get a life. Best part is the audio at the end of this. In a WABC radio interview with Rita Cosby, New York Police Commissioner Bill Bratton confirmed for the first time that the NYPD plans to create a u- new unit to investigate officer-involved shootings in New York City. Batten went on to deny that the department's shot spotter technology, now in use, is capable of picking up conversations, and he criticized privacy advocates worried about the devices. You fucking prick. In an exclusive interview on the Rita Cosby show on WABC Radio late last week that aired on Sunday, Bratton told Cosby that there will be an NYPD unit created specifically for investigating officer-involved shootings. Quote, I'm looking to form a new unit. A force investigation unit that would have specific function of taking over what is now a decentralized investigative function that's handled by initially each of the eight patrol bureaus. Instead, have that as a unit that would report to first deputy commissioner, Brian told Cosby. It's modeled after what I created in Los Angeles when I was there and it worked very effectively there. It's much more cost efficient. It's much more timely. And I think the overall quality of the investigation, which is already very high, as you might expect, because it involves officer use of force. But I think we have the ability to enhance it even further. Cosby asked how large the unit would be, and Bratton responded with, that's still in the process we're working on as far as what the staffing would be. We've identified some of the lead issue part, and I would expect that within several months we would have it up and running. Bratton confirmed earlier speculation that Deputy Inspector John Sprague would be leading the new unit. He will do very well in that environment, Bratton said, He's got a lot of experience. He was most recently chief of detectives over in Staten Island and has a lot of background in the investigative world. So Commissioner Tucker obviously has a lot of confidence in him. He was hand-selected by the commissioner. When asked if this unit may serve to restore public confidence in the police, Bratton says he believes there is already, quote, a high degree of confidence in police investigations. We are just seeking to improve the quality of our investigations, the timelessness, timeliness of it and taking advantage of new technologies that have been developed over the years that we can now bring into these investigations, he said. Cosby bought up the NYPD's recent utilization of the Shot Spotter program, which connects recording sensors that identify gunshot locations and more. The and more was added by me. To the police, Cosby noted that privacy advocates have been critical of the sensor's ability to pick up other sounds, such as conversations. The advocates have to get a life, Bratton said, in response to the privacy advocates concerned. We are not out there eavesdropping. That's not what the system does. That's not what it's designed to do. It's not what it's capable of. So get a life and move on to some other issue. We're not out there eavesdropping on public conversations. I've got enough to do without doing that. There's a SoundCloud link for people who actually want to hear him say that privacy advocates need to get a life. 
Yeah. Like Jeannie said, I send her up the most disturbing stuff, but only on Sunday nights. <laughs> so any thoughts about that get a life? We are getting a life. That's that's the point. Yeah. <laughs> Like we want a, a a a life that doesn't have him in it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I you know don't even know. I don't even know. I think did we? I think we talked about everything tonight except for you know the rigging of the stock market, which we don't which, need to well, talk. Yeah, yeah we know rigging's not a new story. It's been but you know on. that. Hmm? Yeah. We didn't bitch about Radio Shack either, but that's not surprising. I mean, I don't think anybody is shocked that the company's selling all their shit. No, they're going to sell all your information. But, you know, if you have a cell phone, likely whoever they're selling it to already has all this information. How disturbing is that? Yeah, no shit. I mean, it's so disturbing that I'm like, I wouldn't really be worried about it. Radio Shack's probably just going to sell all your information to the government. Don't worry. They probably already have it. Yeah. <laughs> and and the thing, I think, the only thing that really surprised me in the whole Radio Shack story anyway was the fact that Sprint, no, AT&T, AT&T is bitching because like, hey, wait a damn minute. That's not your information. That's our information. You can't sell that shit. It's ours. <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of ridiculous. It's crazy. But, uh, yeah. See, we're okay over here. Radio Shack pulled out the UK years ago. Yeah, well, they they don't really, they haven't really got anything for sale that's, like, useful. No. (laughs) Well, they tried, they opened that style shops in the UK, but the UK already had um, outlets that sold the same sort of stuff. So Radio Shack really never got a foothold in the UK. Yeah, Well, their shit's expensive. Yeah. It's no different than anybody else's, you know. Yeah, so. they just they they rebrand cheap Chinese stuff uh, as Radio Shark. Well, Paul needed to pick up um, some cables that he uses for his laptop to be able to communicate with a bunch of the different network systems at the phone company. And, I mean, he's the guy that fixes all that shit. So, yeah, he kind of needs it. And he went to go winging at a Radio Shack in Wellsville the other day, and it ain't there anymore either. So, yeah. I mean, oh, been... Radio Shack was kind of expensive, but you know what? When nobody else had your shit? Radio Shack's been declining for the last 10 years. I mean, mm-hmm. the last one I went into still had a VHS rewinder <laughs> on, on the counter, and that was a couple of years ago. They, they can't compete with eBay anymore. Mm-mm. You can buy the same shit that Radio Shack sells direct from China now on eBay. So yeah. Well, hell, you don't even have to go to eBay. You can go direct to the source, yeah. where you get your e-cigarette crap from. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, but some people do. Well, that's uh, why I, I've never been bothered by this length of time that China takes to deliver stuff. Because I've been buying electronics components from China for, God, 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. why buy it from a third party person when you can buy it from the factory that's making it? <laughs> True. It's just really weird. I don't know. Like, 
Radio Shack's like a dinosaur. You expected them to go out of business. Yeah. Right? Oh, they've hung on for ages. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how the hell they've done it. I was say, it's, they disappeared from the UK, and I thought they'd gone bust. <laughs> no, 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 they, they kept going in the US. Pulled out of everywhere else and stuck to well, the home market. And I think yeah. the reason that they've held out so long here is all of a sudden Radio Shack turned into, you want a cell phone? We get <laughs> every fucking body. <laughs> you want to look at Sprint? We've got that. You want to look at ADD? We've got that too. You want to look at Verizon? Well, we happen to have that shit too. Well, the, the fastest growing company in the UK uh, years ago when cell phones took off was a company called Carphone Warehouse. And it's now one of the largest media companies in the UK. Um, so I get my intranet through. <laughs> they, they're called Talk Talk when they're doing your home stuff. But yeah, it's basically Carphone Warehouse. Some guy that started off in his uh, garage selling cell phone accessories. Uh, now he's now he's worth millions. It's that's amazing. Because, like you say, he does all the networks. You know, mm-hmm. Carphone Warehouse isn't tied to a contract with any of them. So, yeah. Well, I'm sure for Radio Shack to survive, it had to tie yeah. to a contract with a bunch of the companies. It had to. I don't know. It's just. It's not really surprising that they're dying. Um, the way they treated their people is pretty shitty. So, you know, when I a company starts... I enjoy start- going into Radio Shack and confusing the employees. <laughs> Have you got yeah. uh, such and such? And they'd look at you with that blank look. No. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've asked for a specific component and they don't know what that is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Do you have one with you? Can you show me? What selection of Zener diodes have you got? I can remember to this day being a little kid, and I mean a little kid, and my dad carting my sister and I off to Radio Shack with him on a Saturday because my mom was working overtime, and he was going in there to get the drive motor for his directional CB antenna. Mm Mm-hmm. Directional antenna. Yeah. Is he up to dodgy shit with his radio? This was like in the early 70s? <laughs> so. Yeah, but the only reason you need directional for us when you don't want other people eavesdropping. <laughs> I figured the little kid part clued you into the fact that this was the early 70s. Yeah. yeah, they don't... They're not really nearly as fun or cool or interesting now. No. I'll say these days Radio Shack is just rebranded stuff. I wonder if that was pre Popo. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. It's just, um, what can I say? There's nothing you can say anymore. It's, It's getting to the point where I look at news and I go, well, you know, this isn't even shocking, but it is. Germane to the conversation. Is it about privacy? Yes. Do people need to know about it? Yes. Will they be surprised? No. (laughs) I don't think if you opened up your blinds in the morning and saw somebody from the CIA standing there holding an omnidirectional microphone at your window that you'd be shocked anymore. I would be. I'm three floors up. 
you are three floors up, but I'm just saying, I mean, it's just not shocking anymore that this is what they're getting up to. Yeah. What's shocking is people's reaction to it, that it's a non-reaction. It's even a non-reaction for me now. I've, I've had a product idea for people in streets in the U.S. Yeah. Parasols that have, like, white noise generators built in at the top. <laughs> so you can be underneath having a conversation. But it's broadcasting negative sound waves out the top. See? Yeah. Not a bad idea. Why that, not? Stop the, 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 the microphones. Yeah. Um, I kind of knew we were in trouble the year that we had the... And this was the last year I went to it. The year we had the Republican National Convention down here in Tampa. And they had the behavioral directional stuff up. So there's actually a company called like Behavioral Directional Corp. Okay, and they write mm-hmm. software. And the software removes pixels from stuff and it, it really does some, some interesting stuff. This company is really sophisticated. But the year I saw their technology up outside of the Republican National Convention and for blocks down the street, I was like, okay, well, um, this is game changing. This is going to change Everything, everything we know and everything we think we know is going to change just from looking at this stuff. Just see a picture and you go, okay, well, I can't really take a picture with my phone. I can't really take a picture of anything. So I'm just going to memorize what this box up on this light pole looks like. And I'm going to sketch it when I get home. And then I'm going to go to Google and see if I can find the images that match it. And that was how I found out about this company. And the stuff they can do with their software and their hardware is terrifying. And I knew it was a complete game changer for how I was going to think about everything then. You know, of course, I also watched Ron Paul get trounced. So that was pretty bad for me. That was that was the year that um, I had the blinders completely removed from me as to how politics works. So politics, privacy, and liberty, they were all gone within that two-day expanse of this convention. And that's when I became a privacy rights advocate. Do you see the thought that popped into my head when you mentioned that was, there's never a sinkhole when you need one. <laughs> oh, how true. Just, they're all in one place. <laughs> yeah, they're all in one place, but none of them was around the convention center. Yeah. <laughs> Which would have been good, I guess. So, I mean, what can I say? Uh, Jen, I'll send you a link on Facebook. You'll you'll be disturbed. <laughs> Somebody posted in Casad that the FDA extended the deadline. Uh, I, I'm not gonna even lie to you. I got home. I did laundry. I did all like my normal person stuff, and then I just crashed because I don't. I sleep in shifts. So I have no idea about that, but I will look I into it. I saw it on Facebook earlier. Something hmm. about July. Yeah. Oh, for, well, they can't get their shit together. Every time they've said, oh, we're going to... This is our deadline. This is our deadline. Don't you remember for like three years, we're all shitting our pants about regulations and they couldn't get their shit together? <laughs> There's a shock. Um... I don't know. 
but I will, if, if it's true, I'll talk about it next week with Alex. Or whoever Kasa sends to talk with me. Oh, oh yeah, you, you, yeah. Which of the big vaping people will come and talk? Yeah. <laughs> it's usually just Alex. That's why I laugh and go, Alex is our favorite guest. Alex has been like our only guest except for Julie that one time, so. <laughs> yeah, FDA just announced comment period extension until July 2nd, 2015 to allow interested parties time to submit comments concerning the third workshop. Even if right. you cannot attend the public workshop, you are invited to submit comments supported by research and data regarding electronic cigarettes and the public health. Must be they don't have enough people bitching about us. <laughs> Well, they're probably sick of reading Stan the Mechanics, you know, cut and paste. Oh, you know what I finally figured out? When he writes a blog post, cause I read that stuff, which I probably shouldn't. Because all the stuff I read is probably going to make me take a fucking stroke someday. His blog posts remind me of, remember those Mad Libs you used to do when you were a kid? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they remind me of. And so do his scientific papers. If I'm going to be 100% honest with you, a lot of the shit that people post in the CASA members group on Facebook makes me want to have a fucking stroke. I swear to God, do they not realize that they are in the CASA chat? Well, you know, um, moderating people is a full-time job. And I've got to tell you, like, for the most part, unless it's really egregious, nobody wants to moderate these people. Really, nobody. I mean, duplicate posts, yeah. Um People who over and over again say the same thing, like the guest on Kevin's show last night, eventually they're going to wear their welcome thin. Well, that asshole blogger that needs his lip stapled shut. Which one? The guy that was bitching about all the advocacy groups. Oh, yeah. And then he moved on to We Are Vapors. Somebody thought that the Casa group was was an appropriate place to to throw it out that blogger's post and 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 start you know the beating a dead horse so we are vapors. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> I did yeah. everything but say what the fuck. I I, I said a lot of other shit, but I didn't. Say you can't cancel the show of the guy who runs the network. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> we Are Vapors loved that movie. I don't know. I'm pretty pissed that I contributed to it and got dick for it. Literally. Just like everybody else who contributed to it. But that's a personal opinion. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten a lot more <laughs> from the money I contributed to Smoke Without Fire than I ever did from We Are Vapors. Like, you know, I contributed to this. I'm not really happy with the end results, but you know what? It's a dead fucking horse. It's been explained. And you got some guy that wasn't even a vapor when any of this fucking shit happened that has not fact-checked any of his shit. It's been pointed out repeatedly. I mean, this is the same guy that put up his blog post that the Indiana bill was dead when it most certainly sure as fuck was not. (laughs) And I'm like... This is the guy that was bitching about Kassa. And you're going to stick his fucking blog up in their chat? Really? You know, here's the thing. I think probably it's, it's 
my opinion that most people just read something and react. They don't do any research into it. They don't look into it. They don't try to find the facts behind it before they react. So you see a lot of that in the We Are Casa page. You're going to. I don't think that can be helped because people are reactionary. That's, that's, you're not going to be able to stop that. Yeah, you're getting blurting, not thinking. Yes. Exactly. So, I mean, that's just the way it is, Jeannie. I mean, you're, I don't know you're using blurting. Yeah, but you're, 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 you're using reason and logic, so stop it. People <laughs> see something and react, see something and react. Now, what they don't understand for the most part these days, journalism, even the subpar, third-rate, crappy blogging kind. Because there's, there's first-rate blogs, there's first-rate Fifth Estate journalism, okay? Because that's what blogging and all these talk shows that we have now and all the podcasts, all this stuff is Fifth Estate media. Now, fourth Estate is pretty much dead. It failed us. It's a dead horse. Get rid of it. So what you're dealing now with is the Fifth Estate. So you, what you've got is is the really good stuff. Then you've got the horrible reactionary clickbait. You're always going to have that. And people are always going to react to that because it's designed to bug them. You don't read this stuff carefully with an open mind and you don't do some investigation into what the new journalism is like. You will never know that a lot of this stuff is just, it doesn't matter what's on the page. It's just, can we get you to click? How many people can we get to click? How much money can we gain from it? It's not what it used to be and a lot of the really good stuff the good content and stuff requires people reading it out to you because it's very good it's very thorough it's very well investigated it really tells you something um there's still we're still working out the the fifth state is still having growing pains. We're still working out how everything is going to work, I think. But I think it's going to work better than the fourth estate. People just have to learn how to read stuff and not immediately react. Yeah. Turn on the brain cells, think for a minute before you do something with it. And in more interesting news, at least the Daily Show have found a reasonable replacement. I haven't even... I don't... When I tell you guys I don't watch TV, I mean like to me, C-SPAN 2 is interesting. <laughs> and the reason it's interesting to me is because it's very, very boring. It's very, very evil. And they're having these conversations that mean nothing to most people, but they involve everything in your life. They really do. Yeah. Mostly, they involve your money. Oh, God. I don't know. But yeah, that's that's the news. Um, John Stewart's replacement has been announced for the Daily Show. Who they get? And luckily, it's a guy called Trevor Noah. He's a South African comedian. Okay. Uh, I say this is a good choice because this is a guy that nobody's going to be able to intimidate. He's from South Africa. <laughs> He's also mixed race. Nice. As his own comedy sketch used to say, "I was born illegal." <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, he's used to be he's used to being uh, badgered. Uh, although he did make the comment once, was it? Um, I I I wasn't afraid of police until I came to America. That's one thing he has said. 
Um, you know, but I think it depends on where you are and who you're dealing with. Yeah. It really, and it depends on who you are. And unfortunately, it depends on the people around you. And all yeah. of that really sucks. And that's something that needs talking about, something that needs fixing. But, you know, I guess we can just add that to the list of other things that need fixing. Yeah. It's, the list is endless. So maybe pick something, learn about it, try to change it. Just a little bit on the little micro levels on your street with your friends, with your family. And change will come out of that. It's just not as fast as we would like it to be. I think that was a nice way to end it. <laughs> Ooh, advert. Advert. Okay. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. AmmoSeek.com. You may have noticed commercials like this one on TV recently, hawking products that look, feel, and even taste like traditional cigarettes. Have celebrity huh. endorsements. Come on, guys. Rise from the ashes. But this optical illusion is an electronic cigarette, huh. a battery-powered device that converts doses of nicotine. I have no idea where that's coming from. <laughs> 